We are in Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, and we're picking up where we had left off previously. And uh, the next verse in Hebrews chapter 11, as the author of the book of Hebrews is trying to build up these people in faith, is verse 23, Hebrews 11:23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. That one verse, unless you're familiar with the Old Testament, you wonder, what on earth does that mean? So we're going to go back and we're going to look in the book of Exodus and see what this means. So Exodus chapter 1, and you remember where we had left off Joseph. Jacob had passed away. Joseph had, had now passed away. And it's talking about the children of Egypt in Egypt. And we'll start reading in verse 7. Verse 7. So Joseph, in verse 6, it says, Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. So that whole generation has now passed away. And so it says in verse 7, But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty, so the land was full of them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and even in the event of war, they will join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithon and Ramesses, but they, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks, and to all kinds of labor in the field, and their labors which they rigorously imposed upon them. Okay, so we see in verse 7, the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. They were extremely prosperous. So you remember the way Joseph had left the people in, in Egypt. They were all slaves. They were slaves to Pharaoh because they had to give up their land and everything they had in order to get food to feed their families just giving them back the food which they had given to Pharaoh. Joseph had set it up this way, yet he did not make his own family slaves. He set them up in the land of Goshen, but they, they grew massively. And they now, in verse 7, so that they filled the land. So they weren't just in the land of Goshen. Now they were filling the land. It says in verse 8, Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So he says to his people, he says, the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Well, how many children of Israel were there? Well, they started out about 75 came into the land and they started to grow from there. We know that they were in the land for about 400 years. And then in Numbers chapter 1121, it says that there were 600,000 men that went out of, of uh, Egypt with with the... Uh, with Moses, 600,000 men. So you have at least that many women, so you have 600,000 women. And let's just say you had two children for every man and woman. That would give you a total of about 2.4 million. So you have about 2.5 million 
what they were called Hebrews at the time. They weren't called Jews at that time. In, in, in they, they were called Hebrews in the book of Genesis, and that's slowly going to change. But, but uh, you had 2.5 million of them now. And it says that there were more of them than there were of the Egyptians. So they were exceedingly fruitful. They didn't die off. There wasn't a whole lot of, uh, of death among them. They lived long. And so it says that the sons of Israel were more and mightier. How can they be mightier? Well, this is something that actually is a very interesting consequence that happens even into our day. So I come from a Jewish background, but I'm just giving you clear numbers that are there. The world population of Jews is 0.2% of the world population is Jewish. 0.2%. There is a promise that was made to Abraham in Genesis chapter chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, there is a promise that's made to Abraham. And that promise is reiterated a few times. But in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, it says, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in all, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is what the scriptures say. That is the blessing that came to Abraham. So I want you to remember that, that, that whoever blesses them is going to be blessed. Whoever curses them is going to be cursed. And in them, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You have today, 0.2% of the world's population is Jewish. Yet there were 20, yet Jews have won 22% of the Nobel Prizes that have been granted. And you say, well, that's because Jews give them out. Not at all. These are given out by Swedes. You go to Sweden and on these committees, I will bet rarely, if ever, there was a Jew on one of those committees. Twenty, more than 22% actually of the Nobel Prizes that have been won have been won by Jews. That means not tenfold more per person, but a hundredfold more, two orders of magnitude more, or 10,000% more than you should expect based on world population. Is it because Jews are so much smarter? Not in my experience. Not in my experience. That's true. It's because there is a blessing that was given to Abraham. I've seen smart people from every people group. Really smart people from every people group. And if you think that you know, your people group is smarter than all others, you haven't visited all others. There are many smart people groups. But you have, among the Jewish people, having won 22% of the Nobel Prizes, which are advances that have really advanced society. In, in, in the sciences and, and, and in peace. So you see this. What is going on? It is a blessing to Abraham. You see the fulfillment of the blessing to a man. God promised that I will bless all nations of the earth through you and through your descendants. That's what's happening. Not because they're any smarter, but because of a promise made to Abraham back in the book of Genesis. They are filling this, this community and they are multiplying. It says that they became more and mightier than we. You see the exact same thing in our generation. I'll give you an example. This is a, this is a necktie, and you can't really read this, but it says DOTS, D-O-T-Z. That's one of the companies that started from some of our research. Several of our companies have been, the technologies have been bought by, by the Israelis. They buy the intellectual property from the university, and they start companies. 
Well, how do the Israelis start companies? It's very interesting. So what they do is, is, is they, they need to raise money. You need to raise money to, to start a company. And so I went with them on one of their trips. So, so we went to Australia. And what do they do? They line up meetings with the wealthy Australian Jewish people. So they find, find you know, the four Australian Jews. <laughs> they, they, no, they find the, 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 the rich Israeli rich Jewish families in Australia. And when we'd sit and have dinner, I would say, tell me your story. How'd you get to Australia, of all places? And it's the same sort of story that you hear all the time, that, that they fled there shortly before the Holocaust began. They had nothing. I said, tell me your story. How do you go from having nothing to now being one of the dominant families financially in the country of Australia, on this continent? How does that happen? They told me the story, little stories. Well, you know, the, the, the one son, he, he started seeing that the Australian women would always buy chickens and cook them on the weekends for their families. And so he started offering to pluck the chickens for them. And so he got so much business, the whole family started participating. And from that, they got in the food industry and now they dominate the food industry in Australia. It's, it's stories like that. You see this sort of thing happening all over the world. You can drop into any nation and you can find these wealthy Jewish families and they start controlling all sorts of things. If you look even in the United States, you go through Wall Street, it's dominated by Jewish people. It's not 0.2% of the people that are working on Wall Street are Jewish. Much higher numbers than that. Hollywood, entertainment dominated by Jewish people. Sports, you don't see them running around on the fields. Jewish people don't run around the fields. They're all up in the owner's boxes. That's where you see them. They own these teams. Um, uh, the capital markets, diamonds. You want diamonds? You go to the diamond district in Manhattan. It's all dominated by Jewish people. University faculty, way over. Even in Texas, you drop into a university, it's filled with Jewish professors. University presidents. So when Jews say, you know, it's so hard being a Jewish, they're always Jewish, you know, they're always dumping on us. I'm like, what world are you from? I mean, as Jews, we just dominate everything. What are you thinking of? You see this because of a blessing to a man named Abraham. And you see now the seeds of this in Egypt. You see this. He says they're more and they're mightier than we are. They're controlling everything. They control the land. They control the financial markets. You see this same sort of thing happening. So the Pharaoh says, come, let us deal wisely with them, shrewdly with them. Or else they'll multiply and in the event of war, they will join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. It's not like they were, hey, we want our land back. This often happens with immigrants. Hey, get rid of those immigrants. We want our land back. No, that's not what's happening. They want them to stay there. That's the whole thing. Why do they want them to stay there? Because they're extremely prosperous. You lose the prosperous people. And there's nations in Africa that have lost some of the prosperous people. And those nations just can't get their food anymore and they crater. Same sorts of things happen. You look at, at, at with Haile Selassie. It happened in Ethiopia. When, when, they, when the, the uh, doctors and the lawyers and the professors all started leaving after Haile Selassie, I mean, just, just uh, Ethiopia just cratered in the 1970s. Many of those, those really talented Ethiopians came to the United States, and through them we've been greatly blessed. You lose your talented people in the financial markets, 
And then the professional markets, your nation can really crater. They said, we don't want them to leave. We have to deal shrewdly with them to make sure that they don't leave. It says, so they appointed taskmasters over them and they started afflicting them. But it says in verse 12, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. They were in dread of them. And you see the same sort of thing happening in the world today. A tiny little portion of the world population, 0.2%. And there's this dread of, you know, what are they going to do? What are they going to take over next? So the Egyptians started compelling them to this work. Now let's look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other named Puah. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and you see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all the people, saying, Every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. So if you get rid of all the males, no more males are growing up, being born, or able to be born, what you're going to do is you're going to weaken that population. So this is what he says He says to do. He calls the Hebrew midwives. Now, there had to be more than two Hebrew midwives. Remember, you got 600,000 men, so you probably had 600,000 women. You need a lot more than two midwives. But these are probably the overseers of them, and it even gives us their name, Shifra and Pua. And he says, when you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth, and you see them upon the birth stool, in other words, when they're in the act of giving birth, Right there, when you see, as soon as that baby comes out, you see it's a male, kill it. If it's a female, it can live. Right there upon the birth stool. You're, 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 to, you're to kill these babies. It says, but the midwives feared God. Here, the king of Egypt was commanding them to do something, and they're to command all their underlings but they feared God and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. They didn't do what they were commanded to do. And what did God do? God blessed them because they feared God more than they feared the king of Egypt. God blessed them and he gave them families. There's this tradition that midwives were themselves barren and never, never, never uh, uh, had children of their own. It says God gave them families. God opened their wombs and gave them families. We see three times when civil disobedience is encouraged in the scriptures. Three times. And that is when it comes to imminent human life. Immediate human life. If a human life is going to be taken, these women stood in the gap for the human life against the laws of the land. They opposed the laws of the land and they were blessed for it. And they even, it looks like, lied about it. They said, you know, the, 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 these, uh, these Jewish women, these Hebrew women are tough. You know, we get there, what are we going to do? Baby's already born. 
You said on the birth stool. It was already later. We got there too late. The other two times we see it is in preaching the gospel in the New Testament when the apostles were commanded not to speak any more in this name, the name of Jesus. They spoke anyway. There was civil disobedience. And the third time was when it came to accepting the Lord. So they were commanded by the Jewish people not to receive these things, not to receive these teachings. But they received the teachings and they accepted the Lord anyway. So if you're one of those people who doesn't like the pagan income tax because you think it's too high, you're going to go to jail. All right? You're going to go to jail. But there's only three things as believers we can see in the scriptures where civil disobedience is encouraged. And that is when you can protect human life. Even to the point it looks like they were lying about it. And God blessed them. Because they feared God. And it says in Matthew chapter 10. Don't fear man who can only kill the body. But fear him who can kill both the body and send the soul to hell. That's what Jesus said. Fear him who can kill the body and send the soul to hell. In Matthew chapter 10. When it comes to the protection of human life, when it comes to the preaching of the gospel, and when it comes to the receiving of the Lord. Those are the three cases of civil disobedience. But you see these sort of things happening. You see the the influence of the Jewish people throughout this time in the land of Egypt. And you see it to this day. It's rare to have a Jewish person running a country other than Israel. Rare. It has happened. Disraeli, who who was prime minister several times in the 1800s of, of England... Was, was his father was Jewish, became Anglican because he had a falling out with a synagogue, so he, he was a Messianic Jew. He, he, he was a, a leader of, of England. But it's rare. What you generally find is, like in the book of Daniel, you find Jews instructing and being counselors to leaders throughout the world. This has happened in our own country. With President Trump right now, it's his son-in-law, J- Jared Kushner who's an Orthodox Jew, is an advisor to his father. Even in Barack Obama, here you have this African-American. Who is advising him? Rahm Emanuel and David Axelrod. Two Jews are advising an African-American. Happens over and over again. You find Jewish people in the top places of government advising the leaders. Here you see the influence of them, and they're trying to wipe them out. But remember also the promise to Abraham. The promise to Abraham is those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And we've gone through this teaching before, but let me remind you. That blessing and that cursing is in kind. It is in kind, meaning that the way you bless them, I will bless you. The way you curse them, I will curse you. What does he say to do? He said, when you see the male children being born, kill them. What did God do? The tenth of the plagues was... The firstborn male of every household is going to die. You mess around with God. You think that His laws are not, not firm. In the same way that Pharaoh said, kill them, he says, okay, I'll kill every one of your firstborn. You try to kill my children, I'll kill your firstborn. And then what did Pharaoh do? He says in, in, uh, in, in verse 
22 of Exodus 1. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile and every daughter you are to keep alive. So in other words, he couldn't trust these, uh, these midwives anymore. So he commanded all his people, including the Hebrews, you find a male child, take him and cast him in the Nile. They were obliged to do it. And so what did God say? Okay, you want to kill my sons by drowning? Your entire army of men is going to be drowned in the Red Sea. Your entire army, every one of your males in that army, every one of them will die. This is why I tell people, if you've got a case against the Jews, keep it to yourself. That doesn't mean that what the Jews do is right all the time. Not at all. But if you want to start saying negative things about it, let me know. Because I'd like to stand back before the lightning starts striking. Because I just have seen this over and over again. And I have a whole teaching on this where you can map it out from the time that promise was given. The first person that it fell upon was Abimelech. All the way up through until today. The same sort of thing. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. So that's the backdrop for this. Now let's see Moses, because that's the the portion that we had learned about in Hebrews 11. So Exodus chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi, and the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came out down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid. And she brought, the, and she brought it to her. And she opened it. She saw the child and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take the child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. So it says that there was a man and a woman, both of the tribe of Levi. And she conceived, she bore a son. She saw that he was a beautiful child, meaning he had purpose. Tell me, what mother doesn't think that their child is a beautiful child? And, and, uh, And she hid him for three months. So she's trying to hide this kid because everybody around her, all the Egyptians, all the Hebrews around her, if they see... A male child, they are obliged to throw that male child. So she's hiding the child. Hard to hide a little baby. Because they whimper, they cry, they're not quiet. She couldn't do it anymore. So she gets this basket. She coats it with tar and pitch. We would call it bitumen. It's, uh, it it comes from oil fields. And, and oil comes spewing out of the ground. You can actually see bitumen by, by, uh, for example, uh, um, uh, right in the Gulf of Mexico. You just go to the Gulf, you can just see it there. So anyway, she, she coats it with this, the same material, by the way, that Noah used to preserve his family. So she coated this, and she put the child in it, and she set it among the reeds. So this is the only place she can keep it. She's trying to, to, to protect her son, and she sets her daughter as a lookout. 
So, so this is Miriam. Miriam obviously can speak both Hebrew and Egyptian. She's smart enough to intercede. So she couldn't have been five years old. She's probably like at least 12 years old. There's 11 and a half years of difference between my oldest daughter and my youngest son. And she's always been like a mother to him. And he's always, always looked to her as like a mother. And, and you can see this. She intercedes. But here she's at a distance. So she's hiding this kid among the reeds in this basket. And she's got her daughter on the lookout. So then what happens is, is and, and I, guess, I guess in a way you could say she fulfilled what Pharaoh said. Pharaoh said every male child has to be thrown in the Nile. So I threw him in the Nile, and he happened to fall in a basket. What can I say? You know, this, this is a, this would be a, you know, so she sort of fulfilled the regulation. So the daughter of Pharaoh comes down to bathe. She's in the water. Her, her, her uh, stewards are walking along, along the banks. And it's Pharaoh's daughter who sees this basket in the reeds. So she sends her servant to get it. They pull it out. And she sees this child in there and she knows immediately. She says, this must be one of the Hebrews' children. Knowing that they, they, they have to uh, kill all their male children. What does she do? She intercedes on his behalf. And, and this daughter comes up. So, so Moses' uh, sister, Miriam, comes running up and says, would you like me to get a Hebrew woman to nurse her? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yeah, that would be nice. And she runs and she gets her mother. I mean, this is perfect. And the mother then nurses this kid, weans the kid. How long does it take to be weaned? A couple of years, maybe. Maybe three years even. And then brings the child. Now the child is in a protected state because Pharaoh's daughter said, wean this child for me. And she's getting paid to wean this child. I mean, that's a pretty good deal. And then she brings Moses to her and delivers her. D delivers Moses to her and says, here's the boy. What I want you to look at is really interesting things here. This was an unwanted child. Society did not want this child. But she stood in the gap and protected this child. Society was accepting and encouraging the child's death. But she stood in the gap and would not allow this child to die. This was inconvenient for her. I mean, imagine trying to hide this boy. It was inconvenient. Children can be really inconvenient. But she was not allowed, she would not allow herself to take this child's life. And she and her husband are praised for this in the New Testament. They said they saw he was a beautiful child. They were not afraid of the king's edict. And for this, it pulls out this little act of faith into the New Testament. Boom. You want God's commentary on the Old Testament? Here it is in the New Testament. He calls out this act of faith. This is at the risk of her emotional and physical well-being. People say, you know, if this kid comes in the world, I mean, it's just going to, just too hard on me. It's going to change my career. It's going to change my life. What about this woman? What about this woman really risking her life by doing this? She stood for that kid at the risk of her emotional and physical well-being. 
And the midwives did the same thing. At the risk of their very lives, they did this. At the risk of her survival, she did this. And then what did she do knowing that she could not bring up this boy herself? She turned him over into very good and competent hands and said, here is the boy. She put him up for adoption. That's what she did with this precious life. She stood for the life of Moses. And then think about what that man accomplished. The treasure of life. Life is an absolute treasure. We shall not come against life. Life is an absolute treasure. We protect it. We value it. At the expense of our own well-being, we protect the life of the child. At the expense of our own well-being, at the expense of our own career, at the expense of things that would make our life, it's going to make our life a real disaster, could bring real harm on us emotionally, we protect the life. The life comes first. The life of that child came before the life of the mother. That's the way the mother looked at it. The life of the child came before the life of the mother. And then knowing that she was going to be unable to raise this child, she turned the child over into loving hands. And you say, well, are there always loving hands available? You give God a try. You give God a try. There will always be loving hands available to raise a child. There will always be a loving family for a child. If you can't raise a child, there will always be a loving family there. I will go so far as to say, if you can't find a loving family for a newborn child, tell me, because I can find one very, very quickly. I can find a family that would love to raise that child. You tell me if you think that there would not be a loving family for a child. If you think that a child would come into the world and be unloved, you tell me. I guarantee you, I will find a loving family and a believing family who loves and fears God to raise that child for you. This is what Moses' mother did. The expense upon her life was far greater than it would ever be upon our lives. And yet she interceded, and that little act of faith is captured and brought on in. I want to close with this one verse out of Proverbs. I want you to turn to Proverbs, and we're going to close with this. So I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 24. It's two verses. Proverbs chapter 24. We're going to start reading from verse 11. Proverbs 24, verse 11. Deliver those who are being taken away to death. And those who are staggering to the slaughter, oh, hold them back. How, how much more emphatic could it be? Deliver those who are staggering, who are being taken away to death. And those who are staggering to the slaughter, oh, hold them back. Now look what it says in verse 12. If you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? 
And will he not render to a man according to his work? If we are to say, well, I I didn't, you know, I really didn't realize it. Didn't really know it. You know, the world is saying one thing. He says, if you say, I didn't know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? Does he not really know your heart? Beyond your words, does he not know your heart? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to a man according to his work? There is no excuse for us to go the way of the world. None. The testimony of Scripture is you protect that life at the peril of their lives. The midwives protected those male children at the peril of their lives. And God blessed them and gave them families. At the peril of their lives, the parents of Moses risked their lives in addition to their emotional well-being. Their careers, everything around them was at risk because they were protecting the life of their son. And that's what they did. And they brought such a blessing into the world that you and I today stand in the blessings of Moses that were captured for this world. Does not God know our hearts? Does He not know it? Let's pray. Abba, Father, I thank You so much for the truth of Your Word. And I pray, Lord, for these young people that they would take hold of Your Word and that they would fear God. They would fear God more than anything else. They would fear Him. And Father, I pray that you cause us to be a people that protects life, that values life and protects it. Father, get a hold of their hearts because you know their souls. You know what's there. And Father, I pray for those that are undergoing great conviction now. I thank you, Lord, that your forgiveness is abundant and your hand of mercy is great. Protect them, I pray. Father, I pray for those who are here who are believers. Father, your mercy be upon them. Let them capture from these words of Scripture that which is truth and life indeed. And Father, for those here who do not know you, I pray, Lord, that you would protect them and draw them to Jesus, that this very day they would pray, Lord Jesus, forgive me, because I am a sinner, and come into my life. Forgive me, and come into my life, that that would be their prayer today, for the glory of Jesus, and in his name, amen.